0: So thankful for the word of God that Cole has chosen this morning from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavishes upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Jesus Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first in hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory?
1: Good morning, everybody. This is the longest sentence in the New Testament. Verse 3 through verse 14 is actually one long hundred-word sentence, and you can kind of feel it when you read it in English. The ESV and many other translations have mercifully broken it up for us into multiple sentences. But you get the sense at the beginning of this letter that Paul is so excited to talk about what God has done through Jesus Christ that he just can't stop the sentence, I mean, what he does is basically he just adds phrase after phrase after phrase after phrase describing this one central theme. In fact, the summary of the longest sentence in the New Testament is really easy. Blessed be the Lord for all of his blessings. Isn't it fitting in some ways that the longest sentence in the New Testament is about this the blessings that God has given us in Christ. Amen. In fact, the application, you know, they tell you in seminary, you got to make sure that you have a really firm, clear application. People need to leave with something to put into their everyday life. And the application not be easier in this passage. It's the first three words. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord with your life. We talked a few weeks ago about psalms of blessing and psalms of praise. Because when we say bless the Lord, sometimes we think about the phrase that we use, Bless your heart, right? Which is not the kind of phrase that Paul's using here. This isn't condescension. This isn't sympathy. This is wholehearted praise to God. Blessing the Lord means magnifying him. It means taking what you know about him and blowing it up and telling it everywhere and letting everyone know what kind of God we serve. And it's so fitting that Paul begins this letter, this letter to the Ephesians, which, if you remember from last week, this, this letter to the Ephesians is unique because it's not just to the church at Ephesus, it's to all churches, all Christians, for all time. And the first words, it is so fitting for Paul to say, Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord for all the blessings that he has given us in Christ. In fact, through these first 14 verses, Paul is going to give us a list, a really a story of what God has done for us in Christ. And here's the important thing. And if Paul's writing this letter to all Christians, here's what you need to know. The first thing we glean from this passage is you actually can't understand your story until you understand God's story. You really can't understand why you're here, who you are, what you're supposed to be doing if you don't go back before the foundation of the world to understand what God has been up to for all eternity leading up to this moment in your life. See, God started thinking about you. He started thinking about the world. He started thinking about his son, Jesus, dying on the cross for us before we were ever even born. Before anything happened in the universe, God had in mind this grand family reunion, this story that he was going to tell that you're a part of in the universe. See, at the beginning of this passage, we get an introduction to what God has been doing from the 50,000-foot view and where we fit in it. Now, he says at the beginning, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's one of the most comforting verses in the New Testament, that in the heavenly places, you have been given every spiritual blessing. In fact, the way this is expressed through the book of Ephesians is God is so rich in grace. He is absurdly rich in mercy, and his plan for you is that in the coming ages, it says in chapter 2, he is going to demonstrate his love for you by pouring out those riches on you. For anyone who's in Christ, it says in chapter 2, verse 6, we have been raised up with him, seated in the heavenly places, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. Now stop for a minute. Your story, God's story, is a story of blessing. It's a story of riches of grace being poured out into your life in the heavenly places. Now, there's one little issue with this. We are not currently in the heavenly places, right? So if you're saying, if my life is one long story of blessing, something, there must be a disconnect somewhere. Because it doesn't feel like one long story of blessing. It feels like trials and tribulations and suffering and persistence and perseverance and all the other passages you read about in the New Testament. And so what we see immediately is there's an already and a not yet in the Christian life. There is an already. You really have been, as far as God's concerned, seated in the heavenly places. Your name, if you are trusting in Christ, is written in the book of life. His purpose for you is glorification to the end of eternity with him. But for right now, we are growing into our inheritance and our blessings. In fact, what God has done is, in Jesus Christ, he has started a process that Paul's going to go through in this passage of present and future glory. In fact, he says one, one other place, that our life is going from glory to glory every day. Through our joys, through our sufferings, through our trials, through the triumphs of our life, we are going from glory to glory because we are in his son, Jesus that little phrase, in Christ, you'll notice it all over the place in the New Testament and especially here. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. That phrase is used 40 times in the book of Ephesians alone. What Paul is saying is if you, are, if you have this one quality, you are in Christ. I want to mention a few blessings that you'll have no matter what's going on in your life. So the future holds unfathomable riches. And in the present, we have been made right with God through Jesus Christ. And in the meantime, between now and when we fully see him at our death, here's what we've been blessed with. And Paul's going to outline for us five spiritual blessings that are true in our life now. Not just the blessings to come, five spiritual blessings that are true in our life now. So the first one is The blessing of holiness. If you look at verses 3 and verse 4, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And Paul says, and let me name one for you, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. The first blessing that we have been given, the gift that God has given us, is the gift of holiness. Now, if you're paying attention, you're sitting there being like, this is the gift holiness, like doing the right thing all the time, conforming my life to God's rules all the time. Is there an exchange policy on this gift? Because it doesn't sound to us like there's a gift in holiness. It sounds like there are other gifts that maybe holiness is the obligation. Maybe holiness is a thing that we must do in order to get the gifts. But what Paul makes so clear here, and Jesus makes clear in the Gospels, is holiness is a gift in itself. Being holy, walking with God is a gift that God has given us in and of itself. You know this if you've ever made a total mess of something in your life. You realize that sin may seem fun in the short term, but most of our struggles and most of our shortcomings are linked to this one quality that we have, our tendency to do what we want to do as opposed to what God wants us to do, right? Our our ability... To take a situation and say, this is what God would do in this situation. But I think this is what I'm going to do in this situation. Is what keeps us from the blessing of fellowship with God throughout many seasons of our life. See, the way that Paul describes this is, before the world was created. If you look at verse 4, even as he chose us in him, the him is Christ. Even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. That we would be separated before God. See, the word holy is all through the Bible. It starts in the Old Testament. There's a whole book about holiness called Leviticus. What it takes to be holy in God's sight. And being holy doesn't just mean being good. It means being set apart. All right, So many of the things that we read in the Old Testament, we say, this doesn't seem like a moral issue, really, like whether or not you eat shellfish, or whether or not you have a polyester blend shirt, or whether you boil a goat in its mother's milk. These, these things seem kind of morally neutral, not necessarily good or bad, but you have to understand that holiness is a bigger container than what is morally right in any given situation. It is what God has decreed to set apart his people for himself. You can't understand the Old Testament until you realize God commanded his people to be holy because he is holy. Right? The commandment to be holy isn't, hey, you guys have to do all this arbitrary stuff. It's if you want for me to dwell in your presence, you have to be different than everybody else on the planet. You have to put sin outside of your community because the way the Old Testament community was arranged in the wilderness is that you had all the tribes of Israel in a big circle and you had a tabernacle in the middle. And in the tabernacle, by day there was a cloud of smoke and by night there was a pillar of fire because God's presence was in the middle of the community. And in order to be in God's presence, you had to be holy. You had to be clean. You had, to be, you had to have your sins paid for by sacrifices. And nothing has changed between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Without being holy, you cannot be in the presence of God. Without having your sins paid for, you cannot have God living in your midst. If you are not holy, you're separated from God. But the blessing of holiness is, because of what God has done for us in Jesus, because of the Holy Spirit that lives in us, that we'll see at the end of this passage, you have been made, you have been made in such a way that God is now accessible to you. See, the blessing of holiness is that we don't do a lot of things that bring about unnecessary trouble in our life, but the root of the blessing of holiness is you get to be with God forever, starting now. The blessing of holiness is fellowship with God. I can remember in college when my life totally changed when I read a book by Jerry Bridges called The Pursuit of Holiness. And if you've ever read anything by Jerry Bridges, what you realize is up until that point in my life, I had thought that holiness just happened by osmosis. Like if you just went to church and hung around with the right people and tried to not do bad things, you would just become holy. In fact, I don't know that I would even thought about it at all. I just thought if you just kind of become a Christian, trust in Jesus and wait long enough, you would eventually become a better person, which is not true. In fact, what Jerry Bridges talks about in that book is holiness requires discipline. It requires purpose. It requires resolve. It requires goal setting. It requires that you take seriously moving from here to there. I want to be the kind of person that God made me to be. Well, you're going to have to discipline yourself to do that. And I can remember sitting in the pledge house on my bunk trying to figure out what it would look like for me To become more holy, to pursue holiness. But the last chapter of this book is called The Joy of Holiness. The Joy of Holiness. Because it's not just the effort of holiness, it's not just the discipline of holiness, it's not just the obligation of holiness, it is the joy of holiness. Jesus says it this way in the Sermon on the Mount Blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the holy, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. See, some Christians have this misconception that God's rules, his holiness, is like an in and out principle in your life. Like you were doing great with God and you were doing what he wanted and then all of a sudden you made a bad choice and now you're out. So you gotta get back in. And you gotta rededicate and you have to re-up and you have to prove to God that you're really serious and you have to put away certain sins and clean yourself up and then God will accept you again. That is probably the biggest lie you could believe in the Christian life. See, what happened was God came, sent his son when you thought nothing about him. When you were sinning, when you weren't with him at all, he sent his son to die for you. And so now it's like on your own? Like he did all that for you up to this point, you accepted him and now it's like, don't screw up again. See, what we think is, Our holiness is dependent or our life is dependent on how we're behaving towards God now. But what Paul's going to go on to say in this passage is, when you came to Christ, he forgave you, past, present, and future. And that means that for a Christian, your sin now is not receiving punishment from God or kicking you out of being saved. It gets in the way of your fellowship with him. Right, It's like a family. When you have a family and somebody does something to somebody else in the family that is sinful or that's wrong, you want to correct the wrong, but it doesn't mean you're going to kick them out of the family because of it. It means there's broken fellowship in the family that now needs to be restored. And parents, you know this because when kids sin in the home, the first thing that needs to be done after you discipline the child is to bring them back into fellowship with the rest of the family. See, the goal isn't that everybody would have this kind of disconnected obedience. The goal is that you would have a family who is working together and loving each other and living in the joy of fellowship. And God's family is the same way. When you sin, you're out of fellowship with God. And what he wants to do is restore you into fellowship with him. So there's a joy that comes in that fellowship that can't be had through anything other than your personal holiness walking in the way that he's designed you to walk. Now, the second thing that that God has designed us for is in verse 5. So he not only before the foundation of the world chose us to be holy and blameless, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will and the praise of his glorious grace. You know, I couldn't read this passage and study this week without thinking of what, what happened in England with the queen passing away this week and all the ceremonies of Prince Charles becoming King Charles III, right? We understand in a royal context what adoption and inheritance really mean. I mean, think about this. King, now King Charles III has spent 73 years preparing for his inheritance. There were some great memes and stuff that went around. 73-year-old man finally gets job. I mean, he's actually come into what he's been looking forward to his whole life. He is now the heir, and he is now the king. But up until that point, he took seriously that someday he would come into an inheritance. In fact, if you've watched The Crown, or if you know anything about Queen Elizabeth, you realize that even though she became queen at a very young age, her parents had the insight to bring in tutors when she was a teenager to train her and educate her into what it would mean to someday be the queen of England. And so they spared no expense. They got the best tutors. They got the vice provost of Eton, the greatest school in England, to come in and teach her history and economics and the, the purpose of the monarchy. They got religious leaders to come in and teach her theology about the church. They got the greatest works of English literature and brought them to her so that she, when she became queen, would know what the role meant, and what to do to be a good queen. See, if you know you have an inheritance coming, you need to prepare for when the time comes to walk in that inheritance. And what Charles has done, what Elizabeth has done, is exactly what God is doing in you. You have an inheritance because you are a child of a king. And the time between now and then is this study period, It's this time when we're learning what it means to be children of God, what it might mean to be in heaven without sin and without any hindrance in the the relationship we have with God. What would it mean to walk in that for all of eternity? Now's the time of preparation. You have been invited into the royal family by adoption. See, the people in the ancient world thought about adoption differently than we do. The people in the ancient world would have thought of maybe one single person when you mention the word adoption. In 44 BC, Julius Caesar died, and no one actually knew who was going to be his successor. In fact, Mark Antony, who had been one of Caesar's right-hand generals, thought that he was going to be the successor until they opened Julius Caesar's will. And when they opened the will, they realized Caesar had adopted a son. He had adopted an 18-year-old boy who was still in school. In fact, he was in modern-day Albania when Julius Caesar died, finishing up his training and his schooling, and a messenger came and let him know, the emperor is dead, and you are his son. Now you must return to Italy. So he comes back to Italy and realizes that Caesar had given him everything. The claim to the throne, the empire, the riches, the command of the army. Now, if you know history, he ended up having to fight for his inheritance. But Caesar had willed everything to him. And this was actually really common in the ancient world. What they would do is, if you didn't have an heir, you would go find someone in your extended family who you thought would be a great successor, and you would actually adopt them as your son so that when you died, they would get everything. And so we know that Octavian, who became Caesar Augustus, was a very distant nephew of Julius Caesar, someone in his family that he could trust, somebody that he knew had been trained up the right way to take over for his inheritance. And so Paul comes along and he says, we have been blessed with adoption." As children of God. In fact, in verse 11 and 12, we have been given an inheritance of the kingdom of God because we are now sons and daughters of the king. But what would have struck them as so odd is we weren't previously members of the family. We weren't previously the kind of person that would inherit the kingdom of God. If we want to use a biblical example, think like the prodigal son. The son who runs away and spends all he has on foolish things and finds himself in a pigsty. But to change the story a little bit, think about it. It's not that he gets up and goes home to his own father. It's that somebody else comes by and says, that's the guy I want to be my heir. That's the one, the one in the pigsty, the one eating the slop. I want you to be my son. I want you to take over everything. That's closer to the situation that Paul is describing. It wasn't that we were just a nephew. We were almost in, and we were worthy of being in. It was, no, you were far from God. In chapter 2, he's going to say, you were dead in trespasses and sins. You were far from God. You were separated from him. You were walking in disobedience. You'd actually chosen a different faction of people to side with. And God looked out and said, I want that one to be an heir in my family of my kingdom. See, the story of the Christian life is not like King Charles in the sense that we didn't deserve by birthright anything. In fact, Jesus is clear with the Pharisees. If you were from my family, you would act like my father acts. But you're not. You do all kinds of things that reveal that your father is a different father. And in fact, we were doing the same thing when God reached out and he said, I want you to join my family. We have been predestined to be a part of his family. Now, probably from the time that Marcy read this passage, everybody's like, ooh, predestined, okay. We've got a big theological word in this passage. In fact, it appears twice in this passage. He chose us in the beginning, having predestined us for adoption into his family. And then Paul comes back to it. He's not shying away from this concept. He comes back to it in verse 11. He says, in him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will. Now, this is a pretty loaded theological context, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to put aside for a moment all the preconceived notions that you have about predestination, because we actually just want to know what this passage says about predestination, because this is a key link in what it means to be a part of God's family. Both times he uses this word, verse 5, and in verse 11 and 12, he uses it, For this concept of adoption. You were predestined to be adopted into God's family. This is really good news. You know why? Because it means that God, out of his own will, it says the one who works all things according to his good will, is the one who initiated the adoption process. See, what happened was God predestined, God chose, God saw, God put into action a plan to bring you into his family before you and I did anything. And you know why that's a great comfort? Because he saw everything, he knows everything, and he began to move towards us before we began to move towards him, which means it's all about him, which means it can't be undone. So it's not like he gets you in the home and it's like, "Eh, you're not acting very well, so actually you're not a son anymore. You're not a daughter anymore. Because it's not dependent on you. It's dependent on him. He's the one that decided, I want them to be a part of my family, and I'm going to make it happen. See, there's complexity here and there's arguments we can have here about what this means theologically across the whole New Testament, but everybody's got to agree that the good news about this verse is, God moved toward you before you moved towards God him he actually decided i'm going to work out things so that that person is going to be a part of my family forever when we had no business being a part of his family see the ground of our faith is not us it's not good behavior it's not measuring up it's not that we get everything right all the time the ground of our faith is god the ground of our faith is his plan through jesus christ See, the good news of what Paul is saying, that he knew better than anybody, is he was a child by birthright, but in the matters of the heart, he was as far from God as you could possibly be. And Paul, when he recounts his own testimony, says, even me, the least of sinners, the worst of the worst, God decided he's going to be a part of my family. Guys, it's great news that God predestined us to be a part of his family because on our own, we never would have gotten there. And Paul's saying, look, even before the foundation of the earth was laid, God had a spot reserved for you. What great news. What great news that our adoption and our inheritance are not dependent on our behavior. They're dependent on the love of the Son of God. Amen. Now, the third blessing that Paul gives us reminds us that, Paul, that God didn't just do this by fiat. He didn't just say, all right, you're now in my family. He had to redeem us at the highest cost. Look at verse 7. So he says, To the praise of his glory and grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, that's Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. See, the word redemption in the Bible is something foreign to us because the word redemption there means to buy someone. It means that someone has been enslaved, someone has been conquered, someone has been sold into a kind of uh, indentured service and God has come and put a bid above the asking price On that person to bring them see so it wasn't just that god said yeah i'll adopt that person because they would be a good fit what it means is he redeemed us with the blood of his son he actually paid the highest price that you could possibly pay to set us free to give a parallel in romans chapter 8 he uses this word redemption for our bodies right he says that we long for the day Now, as we groan with these bodies that get sick and break down and decay and die, we long for the day when our bodies are redeemed. See, the redemption of your body means getting a new heavenly body that never breaks down, never gets sick, never aches, nothing ever goes wrong. That's the picture of redemption. When you are redeemed, when your body is redeemed, you go from this earthly body to that heavenly body. But your soul has already been redeemed. Your soul has been redeemed now. We wait for the redemption of our bodies. We wait for the redemption of the world. But we are already experiencing the redemption of our soul. Your heart has been so transformed that it looks like a heavenly, resurrected body compared to an earthly, decaying body. Remember what Jeremiah said? God is going to take out a heart of stone incapable of responding, incapable of loving God, incapable of moving towards him, and he's going to replace it with a heart of flesh, a sensitive, responsive, loving heart towards God. What happened was God came and bought us out of slavery, gave us a new name, a new family, a new heart, and forgave us of all of our sins in order to bring us home. Now, Paul goes on. He didn't just bless us with redemption, he actually gave us a purpose. In verse nine, he blessed us with the knowledge of his will. And this is what we talked about last week when we did an overview of Ephesians because this is the theme verse. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ. This is the theme verse of the book of Ephesians. Everything in the universe is being summed up and united in him. For us, practically, that means that we now know for the first time in our lives what God wants and what we need to do in order to walk in it. In Ephesians 2.10, it says, we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. But there's one more blessing in this passage. In verse 13, it says, and you, when you heard the gospel, and when you believed, We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. See, there's a really unique word used in this verse. It's not used elsewhere very often in the New Testament, but it was used outside of the New Testament all over the place because it's the word that you would use if you were putting a down payment on a property. Or it's the word that may be most similar to us to earnest money. The money that you would put on an offer saying, if I back out, my money is forfeit. This is a promise to you that I will hold true to my word. In fact, the word that we would use that maybe is most similar to this is, it's like an engagement ring. I give you this promise that we will be together forever. I give you this promise that we will be married. And what God has done in the Holy Spirit is he has given us a down payment. He has given us an engagement ring. He has given us his earnest money that your inheritance is guaranteed. See, the role of the Holy Spirit in our life isn't just to convict us, although he does that. It's not just to remind us of truth, although he does that. It's to remind us that we may not have all of these blessings yet. But just as true as God himself is, just as true that the Holy Spirit is going to be here forever in you, we will come into our inheritance when we die. See, the Holy Spirit is evidence in our own hearts that God is going to make good on his word. The blessing of the Holy Spirit is knowing that whatever we go through now, the internal witness, the sealing of the Holy Spirit reminds us that even greater things are to come for those who love God. So the movement of the book of Ephesians is this, here's who you are, live like it. Chapters 1 through 3, here's who you are, here's what God's done. Chapters 4 through 6, this is what it means to live like it. We get a miniature picture of that in this first verse. Here's who you are, you are his, you are blessed, you are redeemed. You are forgiven, you've been adopted, you're part of his family, you are holy, you are sealed, you are waiting, you are empowered to live as God designed you. And all of this is to the praise of his glory and grace. As we respond this morning, as we continue in worship this morning, here's what I want us to do. Take one of these blessings that God has given and zero in on it and begin to bless the Lord in your heart. As we sing this final song, take a moment by yourself or even with the people around you to pray and bless God for the blessings that he has given us. See, the proof of what it means to know that you have been blessed, Paul says, is to bless God in return. What's the proof of the Christian life? A life of praise and worship to God. How do you know if you've gotten it? Your life turns into the praise of his glory and grace Take a moment this morning, pray and thank God. Ask him to show you how his blessings in your life can lead to you blessing him this week. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this list of blessings. Father, that couldn't even exhaust what you've done for us in Jesus. Father, we ask this morning that you would do in our hearts what you did with Paul, which is to show us that now as members of your family, we have been given the right to be called children of God children of the Most High King. Father, that we have an inheritance waiting for us. Father, an inheritance that people we know and love are experiencing now. Give us the reminder, Lord, because of your spirit, because of the praise that wells up in us, because of the conviction that we experience, because of the truth that we know, because of the things that you put on our plate to do as we walk through this world, that you will always fulfill your promises for us. Father, turn our hearts this morning to bless you with worship, and praise. Father, would you give us words to speak to you in these songs? Father, in prayer, as we turn our hearts to you that magnify you, that celebrate you, that worship you. Father, we bless you this morning because of your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.